All right, Genesis 41, second half, 33 through 57. The shadows are driving me mad. Okay. Let's see where we are here. Because it's in the middle of a paragraph. All right. Now, this is Joseph speaking. He's, uh, he's just interpreted the dream to Pharaoh. It says, Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? In whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people uh, shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no end shall lift up a hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephniath Paniah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God had made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to do, do. So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, 
for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures which you have given us by your spirit to make us wise for salvation through faith in your son Jesus. We ask that you would make it profitable for us this morning, teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. Make us mature, equipped for good works as we study the scriptures this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You'll remember from the story of uh, Corrie ten Boom that on the night of the invasion by Germany that she had had a vision, a dream, as the, she and her sister Betsy uh, sat drinking tea, listening to the planes and the bombs and everything that was going on around them. She had that dream that, that uh, she and her sister and her, her brother and her, her other sister, Nolly, her father and all these other people that she knew were brought into a wagon and they were brought to some place outside of town they did not want to go. That was 1940. On June 28, 1944, it happened. Finally, so to speak. The house which uh, they had been using as basically the center for the resistance within Harlem at that point in time was raided. Amazingly, the Germans never found the Jews that were hidden upstairs, but they took the entire family into custody. Brought them to the jail, actually brought them to the school, which was serving as a jail, because they had rounded up the resistance throughout the entire city. All of these people that she saw in her dream were there, and they were soon to be loaded onto a bus and brought to a prison. The next, over the course of that whole year, she went from jail to a work camp and eventually ended up in the death camp with her sister Betsy. Betsy, as we might, we might remember, had the vision just before the end of the year that both of them would leave the death camp before the end of 1944. And in fact, Betsy did because she died that day. And yet, the same thing happened. By the end of the year, Corey was no longer in the death camp. What's interesting for Corey is that years later she went back and there was a celebration that uh, went on at the death camp and it is there that she learned that she was released by mistake. There was a clerical error that took place. She was not supposed to go free. In fact, the women her age were supposed to be killed the very next week. So God in his merciful providence set her free. But That's just the beginning, so to speak, of her life. He set her free for the rest of her life, for the the ministry that she would do to the people who had been damaged by the war. And so it was not just that she was set free, but she was set free to serve. That's what we see here in the life of Joseph. His dreams are being fulfilled. The dreams that he had all the way back when he was still a youth in the land of Canaan, are about to be fulfilled. He's going to be set free, but he's set free to serve. Our big idea this morning is that the exalted Jesus, and this will make sense later, the exalted Jesus shapes us to serve. Let's begin with the idea that Jesus has been exalted as the Father's vice regent. 
Now, one of those phrases might be unusual to some of you, that idea of a vice-regent. What that is, is that it is someone who rules on behalf of the king. Sometimes a king is unable to serve through illness or injury. We see that in the life of Israel. That one of the kings, Asa, was made leprous, and so he was unable to rule with from the throne room, and so his son served as vice-regent. Jesus serves now, seated at the right hand of God the Father, as vice-regent over all of creation. But let's go to the text, and let's see what we, what we find here in the life of Joseph. Joseph, it's interesting, he's, he's there before Pharaoh, and when you're before the potentate of, the, of the, you know, the superpower of the world at that point in time, you can't hesitate too much. If he pauses to stop talking, uh, he's going to be dismissed. And so it's amazing that he comes up with this plan on the spot. And we'll talk about how he was able to do that later on. But Joseph moves quickly from the interpretation of the dream to a plan to act upon what now is known. He quickly inserts this before Pharaoh even knows what's happening. And so he quickly says, basically, appoint a prime minister or vice-regent to oversee the collection of one-fifth or 20% of the produce during the abundant years, the years of plenty, to prepare for the years of famine. And so what Joseph encourages him to do is, first off, create a system of people in authority, the prime minister, and he also mentions overseers, who who will enact this process of gathering up the, the, the food and storing the food against the day of the famine. What's interesting to me is he proposes a flat tax. That's just it's a historical thing. Okay, this is not meant to be taken as that you shall only have flat taxes. I'm not saying that. I just find it interesting. My brain just works that way. Okay, but it's a flat tax. Everyone pays the same percentage, whether they're rich, whether they're poor. They pay the same percentage of the 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 produce of their fields, and it all goes in to the treasury of Pharaoh. Throughout the land, in the various cities, people bring it. The flat tax. This reminds me a little bit of Romans 13. What we see here taking place with this this government, the Egyptian government, is similar to this, Romans 13. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. And here's the key point. For he is God's servant for your good. Pharaoh, an ungodly king, was going to be God's servant for the good of his people in this particular instance. God is at work through the government for the good of the people in the preparing for the day of famine that is going to come. How does Pharaoh respond? You shall be over my house. The unexpected happened. I'm not sure Joseph really thought that this would take place. He didn't probably expect that he would be the one who would be named. But Pharaoh declares that Joseph is the one that he is going to name to be prime minister. Joseph is the man. And so we see this continuation of this pattern that goes on in Joseph's life. That Even in his house, he was what? The youngest son. But what? Exalted to the, the power. He had the, the responsibility to run the household. 
He was the one who was given the coat of many colors, the long sleeves, so he didn't have to labor. He was the supervisor. What happens in Potiphar's house, he's the one who rises up and in everything except Potiphar's wife. He's in control. He's in charge. What happens when he's thrown into the prison? He becomes the, the first trustee, the most important one. Again, he rises to the place of most responsibility. And now, here he is, though a slave, Pharaoh now sets him free to run, not a prison. Imagine that for a moment. Going from a prison to ruling a country. That's a pretty significant leap. He who was humbled through his enslavement is now exalted as the second most powerful man in the most powerful country in the world at that point in time. Joseph, who was faithful in little things, suddenly has a new, very important job. The destiny of millions of people hang on how he does his job. For some reason, my mind went to the movie Moneyball. There's a scene, which is, it's loosely based on what happens with the, uh, Billy Bean in the Oakland days. Um, he goes and visits Mark Shapiro, who is the GM of the Cleveland Indians, and he's witnessing what goes on in these trade discussions with them. And he notices that there's this little unassuming guy kind of in the corner, that's got his laptop, and this is back in the early 90s. Not too many people had laptops. And he's noticing that people are sort of deferring to him and asking him these questions. He's not sure what this guy is. And what happens is, is he's actually nobody. But he recognizes that there's something in this guy that he needs. And so he asks him this question, who are you, what you do? What do you do here? And what he ends up doing is exalting him from the nobody status of the Cleveland Indians to assistant general manager of the Oakland A's because he viewed this as a wise man who knew how to find value in a time where he did not have a big budget but was competing against teams that had big budgets. Joseph seems unassuming, but he is exalted. Pharaoh says, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. I cannot imagine that. Everyone, except Pharaoh himself, is answerable to Joseph, the Hebrew slave, the fulfillment of his dreams. And I kind of bring this back a little bit through the, the life of the Temboon family. The last few months in which, they were, which she and Betsy were incarcerated in the death camp, Betsy had these visions we're not going to talk about that too much in terms of the spiritual theology behind all of that. But what she had is that she had a greater view of their future than Corey did. She had a view of their future of opening homes where people could find healing from the abuse that either they suffered or they perpetrated on others after the war. And what we see taking place in Corey's life after the, the war ends is that very thing begins to unfold. And she, although she is not trained in psychology, she is not trained in sociology, she's not a trained pastorish kind of person, never been to School of Theology 101, she now begins to oversee this ministry that brings healing to the hearts of many who have been crippled emotionally and spiritually by the war. An unexpected 
middle-aged woman. Didn't plan on that. Pharaoh continues. He grants Joseph his signet ring. This is the one which you would take and you would stick in the wax on the the official documents saying that, that this now has the authority of Pharaoh. He gives the ring and therefore authority and power to Joseph when he places it upon his hands. Joseph now can seal these documents with the authority of Pharaoh. Not only that, but he makes a public demonstration of Joseph's authority because he rides through the main city on his chariot. The second chariot is, has Joseph in it. And the, the, the soldiers are proclaiming, bow the knee, bow the knee, pay homage, honor Joseph. And so Pharaoh does not kind of do this in a backroom deal, but he also does it publicly. To make, to make, so everyone knows that Joseph is the one they must obey. We see that the text says that he was 30 when this happened. He had been enslaved for about 13 years, give or take. Long su- Notice the long-suffering nature of this man, the character of this man. Something about 30, though. Second Samuel 5. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. David, who years earlier had been anointed king and had spent about 15, no, not 15, probably about 13 or so years on the run from Saul. He, too, was exalted as king. And would reign. We don't know what happened. What old? Yeah, yeah, right. What age Daniel was? But again, here you have a a slave, okay, who is now exalted because he interprets a dream, and is going to be one of the main governmental leaders within Babylon. All of these things point us to Christ Himself. They foreshadow what will happen with Christ that we read about in Philippians chapter two. That though he was God, he did not cling to all of that. He did not hold on to that, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant or a slave found in human nature, became obedient to death, even to death on the cross. We see the humiliation of Jesus through his earthly life and through his earthly ministry. And then we see Jesus exalted. Not when he was 30, but probably when he was about 33. Uh, not to fulfill his earthly ministry, but after his earthly ministry was done. We see him exalted to the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is not just the vice regent for the superpower of the world. He becomes the vice regent for the entire universe. He rules at his father's request, over all of creation. He rules, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, as head of the church for the good of the church over all of creation. Jesus, exalted so that he has the name that is above every name. He is Lord. And what does Paul say? Every knee shall bow 
every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is coming a time, we don't see this now, but everyone will bow the knee before Jesus. Everyone will acknowledge who he is, whether they do that joyfully as a Christian or reluctantly as one who is going to condemnation. They will do this. They will acknowledge that he is Lord over all. And so Joseph points us to Jesus who humbled himself but was exalted to the Father's side. Second part of this is that Jesus helps us to live in but not of the world. Now some of you might be going, wait a second, Steve, how do you get that? And I say, be patient with me, please. In order for Joseph to serve and to be honored by the Egyptians, he must essentially become Egyptian. We see this taking place throughout the text. Pharaoh, the king, acts to do this for Joseph's well-being and effectiveness. He's going to make him one that that has credence with the people. So he doesn't just have authority, but he will have the respect of the people. As I think about what happened with uh, with Corey Temboom. She learned the lessons in the pit. That's exactly what her sister says to her. That, that we need to tell people that there is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. And we have been there. She, she's, she speaks from, the, from having experienced it, not just studied it in a book. It's not just head knowledge, but there's experiential knowledge of biblical truth that takes place. She was in the pit, that she might speak about the pit. And Joseph now is going to be Egypt, that he might speak to Egypt. And so Pharaoh clothed him in garments of fine linen. And that's one of the things that's very different between Semitic culture and Egyptian culture. In in Semitic culture, they have very colorful robes. Due to the heat, I imagine, of Egypt, they would have very simple white linen clothing. And so Pharaoh makes him dress up, or he gives him the clothing, the, light, the, the garb of an Egyptian. Not only that, but he gives him an Egyptian name, one that I can barely pronounce, and I'm not going to. It's a sign that Pharaoh is an authority over Joseph because he renames him. Remember the whole thing of naming things in, in, in Genesis. So he's under Pharaoh's authority. He's given a new name. He's given a specifically uh, Egyptian name. And there's unclear, it's really unclear as to the meaning of this name. There are different theories as to what it means. But there's no clear-cut understanding of it. Not only that, but he gave him in marriage to Asenath, a woman, an Egyptian woman, and a prominent Egyptian woman. Her father was the priest of On. Own was seven miles, make sure I get it right, northwest okay, of Cairo. It was the center of the worship of the god Ra, and he is the chief priest in the worship of the god Ra. And so he is nobility within Egypt. And so he gives him a status through marriage of nobility. Pharaoh is making sure that the people of Egypt will recognize Respect and obey Joseph. Now, reading all of that, 
we might be tempted to think that Joseph sold out just like his brother, brother Judah did. Something like Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves. He goes completely native, you know. But that's not the case. And why, I believe that, is the names of his sons. He gives them Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. And in the names themselves point to his faith in the God of his fathers and not the gods of the Egyptians. He still is faithful to his God even though he looks like he is an Egyptian. He does not worship their gods. Manasseh, he recognizes that, that he has now, God has been so good to him that he has forgotten the suffering of all of those years. He has forgotten his misery. He's got it so good right now. Not only that, but his son Ephraim points to the fruitfulness. He's thankful for the fruitfulness of Egypt prior to the famine, but also that God has been fruitful to him. That he has been fruitful. And he's, he's thankful for God in the midst of this. And so he worships God, worships God with these names. So I think of John 17 when Jesus prays for his people. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so Jesus prays for his people that they be in the world, but not be of the world, that we look like, talk like, and in some ways act like everyone else in Tucson, but that we have a characteristic about us, a character about us. Morally, we are different from the rest of Tucson. We see Paul doing this as well. 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might serve some, or sorry, save some. And so we, we begin to enter this thing that actually we'll talk about a lot at the, uh, the seminar later in, in this month. But that idea of being in the world, but not of the world, just as Joseph was in, not of, Egypt. Jesus sends us into this world, our characters to be different. And one of the best examples I can think of this, Hudson Taylor. If you were to look at any pictures of Hudson Taylor... While he was in China, you would think he's Chinese. Because he's wearing Chinese clothes. He's got a beard similar to the Chinese. He even has the pigtail like the Chinese men had. He looked Chinese. But he did not worship the gods of the Chinese. And he did not have the moral standards of the gods of the Chinese. He brought them the God of the Bible. He was all things to them. He was Chinese to them that he might bring to them the message of Christ, the King and the Savior. And so Jesus, the Father's vice regent, sends us into the world by his authority to be his representatives where we are. In other words, he sent you, right now, to Tucson. Okay? Do you grasp that? You are where you are because he sent you there to be his representative to that place. Third part of this. 
is that Jesus makes us wise to serve through the Spirit. Why is it that Pharaoh chose Joseph instead of some other um, noble or wise man who was already in his court? Pharaoh says this, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? He recognized God's hand in the life of Joseph. He recognized it, first of all, by being the only one who could interpret the dream. Okay, Apparently, all of his uh, magicians and priests were not wise and discreet. Joseph was the only one in that room that was. And also on the basis of this plan that Joseph pulled, from his perspective, out of thin air. He recognized the only source of this uh, plan, as well as the interpretation, could have been the God that Joseph just talked about. He recognized God's hand. Joseph, in a sense, practices exactly what Proverbs 27.2 says. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth. A stranger, not your own lips. He didn't come forth and say, Appoint me, Prime Minister, because I'm so smart. He did not toot his own horn. He didn't say, look at me, look at me. But Pharaoh praised him in this, that he had the Spirit of God in him. So Pharaoh also says, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. And that is the exact man that Pharaoh needed to rule the nation to prepare for the crisis that was coming. Joseph's plan revealed that God's Spirit produced that wisdom and discernment in the face of the Magi who failed. But it wasn't just wisdom that Joseph had. Think about this. He spent the next seven years working hard preparing Egypt The text makes this clear. He he leaves the presence of Pharaoh and he goes throughout the land and he goes from city to city to make sure that everything is being prepared, that the storehouses are being built, that the the food is being collected, that that the storehouses are being filled. He's doing this without corruption, making sure that there's no payoffs for special people and influential people that there's justice and fair, uh, fairness in what is going on here. But he's working hard. There's no, there's no mention of him going back to Hebron. Wouldn't, wouldn't that sort of be what you might want to do? I got free. Can I, hey, Pharaoh, can I have a month to go home? <laughs> I'd like to see my dad. It's been a long time. He doesn't do that. There's a task that has to be attacked at that point in time, and he attacks it. And so we grow in wisdom in order to serve well as the Spirit instructs us by the Word. That was one of the remarkable things about Corey Ten Boom's life as I read the, um, the hiding place the last couple of weeks. The godly heritage that she had, morning and evening, her father was reading the Scriptures. God mercifully, providentially provides them with a Bible in the prison camp. And what are they doing? They're in a place where they, the, the guards are not coming near because of the fleas. And what do they do? They read the Scriptures. 
They read the Scriptures aloud. They prayed through the Scriptures. God made her wise, not through visions, but through the Scriptures so that she would be able to fulfill the ministry that God had prepared for her in advance, just like it talks about in Ephesians 2, verse 10. That she walked in that in accordance with God's purpose for her. We grow in wisdom through the power of the Spirit. We see um, partially because we have 1 Corinthians 2. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? Okay, Paul is saying, who's so smart they can give God advice? Answer being, nobody. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel, gospel grace here. But he says, we have the mind of Christ. How do we have the mind of Christ? Through the Scriptures. As the Spirit illuminates it to us, we receive the mind, the knowledge of Christ sufficient for our needs. It is a gift of grace. And so we, put all, we, start, we start to put all of this together. We recognize that just as we have been set free from our bondage to slavery, to sin, okay, we have been set free through the work of Jesus Christ. We've been pardoned. We've been set free for the purpose of serving other people. Just as Joseph was set free. Set free so we can serve God and we can serve other people. There's, there was a movie that came out. Oh, I can't remember how many years ago it was. And I didn't see it. I always wanted to see it. A Day Without Mexicans. And it was, it was meant to be one of these provocative movies. What would happen if there were no Mexicans for an entire day? And it, you know, the idea being, what wouldn't happen in America okay, if there were no Mexican-Americans? I'd like to th- let you to think about something a little slightly different. A day or a life without Christians. A world without Christians. What would this world be like if Jesus hadn't come, hadn't saved the people for himself, and kept them in this world? You know what wouldn't be here? Most of the hospitals that take care of sick people wouldn't be here. Because the vast majority of them have been started by Christians. What also wouldn't be here? Most educational, uh, advanced educational institutions. Here in America anyway, and in Europe as well. They were started by Christians. You take away Christians, you take away most of the higher education in this world. What else isn't here? Representative democracy. All based on the Calvin and the Reformers and the Puritans. You take them out of the world and you just have monarchies. Still, to this day, dictatorships. That's just the beginning. Why do we have all those things now? Because God, in his providence, set people aside, gifted those people, made them wise for the founding of those institutions to, the meet, to, to meet the legitimate earthly needs of people. <coughs> Serving the world because we belong to Jesus. 
that supports, in some ways, the gospel message. It fleshes it out. It demonstrates the love of God to sinners and that He cares for their earthly needs just as much as He cares for their spiritual needs. Now, some people never get that. They just get the earthly stuff. But God makes us wise so that we can serve our world with discernment, with wisdom, As a result of Joseph's work, Egypt was ready when the famine struck. But it didn't strike just them. As, as Moses says, it struck the land around them. We're not sure if it was a worldwide famine, but it certainly spread far and wide around Egypt. And they had enough grain to keep that region of the world alive because of the wisdom God gave to one man. One. Part of what we see here as well, lastly, is that even the Egyptians had to buy grain. Kind of odd. You think, I don't know, I guess I would sort of think, I already paid the tax. (laughs) Shouldn't I be one of the ones that get it for free? And yet, there were no freebies in this. Not sure why. Don't quite understand it. But again, this is what happened in history. This doesn't necessitate that this is, uh, this is what must happen. But I just thought that was one of those interesting, huh, what's going on here? Back to the big picture. Let's wrap this up. Jesus was given to us as the head of the church. And he now shapes us by the power of the Spirit to serve Him and the world. And to do that, He gives us wisdom through the Spirit so that we are able to meet the crises of our day. And our day has crises, doesn't it? They may not be a worldwide famine, but that God gives some of us to step in those gaps, to do extraordinary things. That's what strikes me about Corrie ten Boom. She's an ordinary woman. There was nothing special about her. She wasn't significantly gifted. She wasn't charismatic and, you know, drew people towards. She was a middle-aged woman who never got married and lived in her father's house until she ended up in a prison camp. She's an ordinary person. But God did extraordinary things through her. You're ordinary people. But that does not mean that God can't do extraordinary things through you. Kind of like Francis Schaeffer said, no small people, no small places, that kind of thing. You're made in the image of God. There's some significance there. He can use you. But are you making use of the means of grace to grow in the wisdom to face the challenges of the future? In other words, are you getting ready for how God might use you? Let's pray. Father, I'm uh, grateful for um, how you worked in history. In the life of uh, Joseph, 
Daniel, David, <coughs> Nehemiah, Paul. So many of these people who um, weren't important, but that you exalted and you used them to do incredible things. That they point us especially to Christ, who was great, but made himself nothing. And whom you exalted. And that is the, really the pattern, the humiliation and exaltation. Humiliation, exaltation. So, Father, help, help us to humble ourselves before you, but also to make use of those means of grace so that we are prepared for whatever you situations you in your providence put us in that we might minister in the name of Jesus to sinners. Help us to really have an eye for that, a heart for that. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.